Welcome to Toxicology, brought to you by Recovery Unplugged, the place where we talk about all things substance abuse, recovery, and mental health, with guests offering varying perspectives and viewpoints. Hosts Joseph Gorordo and Jason Cabello share about their addiction and recovery and other serious subject matter through lighthearted yet candid conversation. One, two, three, show! Ha <laughs> ha! Intro. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Toxicology, the latest, latest, greatest podcast about all things addiction, mental health, recovery, music, fashion, fashion. <laughs> You're wearing your uh, French sailor la la. Uh, very comfortable summer stripes I'm, get, I'm getting cruise ready i'm so yeah. excited for this cruise coming up but welcome everyone welcome to another episode i'm jason cabello with me always is my host joseph gordo that's me lcdc yeah and i'm jason cabello no letters behind the name but that's okay i'm enough yeah no letters <laughs> but you know what you are enough because today is your birthday but not belly button birthday. Not belly button birthday. It's the birthday of when you figured out how to not do drugs. No. It, well, so, yeah, theoretically, yes. But it was the day that I started listening to, pe- listening to people who didn't do drugs anymore. <laughs> and that's what, that's what I... People who were telling you how not to do drugs. People were telling me how not to do yeah. People who were giving me suggestions on what I could do yeah. to no longer do drugs. Seven years of freedom from active addiction. Over 2,200 days. I'm going to take your word on that one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of days. So, the the, the most important thing that I realized, and you know, I I don't do too much reflecting on this, but today I I had the chance to. Yeah. And God, I don't want to use her. You know, (laughs) and it's like I never, I never thought that was possible. And today's like a triple seven because. It was almost seven years to when I, the first time I went to a meeting and and wanted to get clean Uh and started starting going to treatment, seven years, and then seven years of clean. So 14 years of being in the recovery community. Trying to seek, yeah. Trying to seek it, yeah. And luckily, you know, as I always tell people, like, you know, I have somebody in my life right now who I've talked about on the show who just, right, is on his way back to treatment today. Mm. In and out, in and out, in and out. And, you know, he apologizes to me all the time. And I'm like, don't apologize. Like, surprise me. Yeah. Call me before you use. And he did this time, but still, you know, that. that. Yeah. But he's going back to treatment. He wasn't like, and, stop me from using. He was like, I'm just filling you in. <laughs> no, no. He he actually, so that night he, he, he called me. He was on the bus, taking the bus home from work, back to his sober living. It was like, man, I'm having a real urge to use right now. So I was like, well, let's talk about it. So we talked about it. He went home, made himself some stir-fried dinner, went to sleep. But I guess woke up the next day and was like, I don't think I'm going to go to work today. I think I'm going to do my thing. So I don't get mad at it, but I understand it. And I try to tell him how I did it. That's all I could do. For sure. You know, it's, uh, I thought you put that about how it's like seven years from when you started to listen to people telling you. Yeah. And I had a weird experience. Well, not a weird experience, but, you know, I, uh, we, I got a call yesterday from a sister looking for help for her brother, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, the mom and dad only speak Spanish. 
So, you know, I talked to the dad last night and then this morning the mom calls me and she's like, oh, you know, he went to sleep, you know, he was ready to go last night. He asked us if he could sleep at the house. We let him sleep. And now he woke up and he's saying he doesn't want to go. Right. And I start talking to her and this poor woman, you know, I shared a little bit of my experience with her and she just starts crying, you know, and she's like, well, you know, my daughter's telling me not to give him a place to stay. And sometimes he pushes me and yells at me, but I don't tell anybody because I don't want him to get in trouble. Right. And, and it just breaks my heart. She's like, will you talk to him? And I get on the phone with this kid, 20 years old, clearly high. Yeah. You know, because, you know, I told his mom, I was like, he wanted to go last night because he was hurting. He probably got something got after it. you went to sleep. Yeah. And now he feels fine. Um, but she's like, no, no, I don't think he did. I'm like, mm, yeah, he did. Um, so he gets on the phone. He's clearly intoxicated. Mm -hmm. And I start telling him, like, look, man, like, I was just like you, you know? And, like, you know, you've been taking fentanyl for four years. There's no way that, you know, you haven't used in two days and now you're fine. <laughs> like, what, right. you know, I, I think you're lying. But I'm telling you, like, if you follow some suggestions, you know, if you do some work on yourself, if you figure out what's driving you know, you to use in the first place. Like, you can still do all the things you want to do in life, man. Like, yeah. you don't have to live the way you're living. Like, I'm sure things haven't been going great. He was like, no, nah, man, like, I'm good. I'm in recovery now. I'm like, mm. <laughs> I'm in recovery two days. You know. Two days of saying, of being clean. I, I got something yeah. in my system right now. But once you start to get sick again, let's see. Let's see where yeah. you're at. And, and then, you know, he's like, you know. He's like, 30 days is just a really long time. I'm like, what else are you doing, man? You don't have a job. You live with your mom. Uh, like, it's, what's 30 days for the rest of your life? You know? Yeah. I, I heard somebody at a meeting one time. He, it was an old timer. He was getting really upset when he was like, you know, I just keep on hearing people saying, you know, when they go back out, like, why'd you go back out? I'm like, because I was bored. And I was like, man. That using existence seems boring to me now. Like, yeah. it, it's, you know, I'm not doing anything other than chasing the drugs, going home, nodding out, you know, and that, and like repeat. But I think, you know, there's something that you could speak on more than I could with those letters behind your name. It's just like the reward system gets there when you're seeking and getting high. Oh, yeah. And then, yeah, well, it all gets rewired with the dopamine and the serotonin and, you know, regular normal things that make people happy don't make you happy when right. you're used to, um, that that's the hard thing about early recovery. So, you know, whenever I, and I do have the, the privilege of bringing meetings into people who are, you know, still in detox uh, every other week, I, I do that. You know, and I always sit down and I'm just like, listen, I understand that me saying like, I have seven years clean is just like unfathomable yeah. to you right now. So let's talk about my first week clean. And that, cause that's the shit that yeah. it's just like, your life just goes into slow motion and everything sucks. And it's like, I know what I could do to feel a little bit better right now. Well, and the thing with the, with like life being more interesting, like sober than, you know, how boring, you know, like, so we went to, we went to Kentucky this weekend, which by the way, Kentucky, lovely, beautiful, the people so nice, yeah, nicer than Austin for sure. Um, but so uh, on the, at the end of the second night, we saw Tyler Childers, Right. And puts on this two hour phenomenal set, you know, after an hour and a half of ripping it with the full band, the band goes away. He pulls out a chair and sits down with an acoustic, like just to really stab you in the gut with the, you know, and the last song he does, he pours a shot of whiskey, holds it in the air and sang this traditional Appalachian moonshine song for a friend of his. 
then he tosses the shot. He doesn't drink it. And in a couple of his songs, he changed cuss words. You know, he changed the word, uh, you know, fuck, fucked up to messed up. And it's like, oh, is Tyler Childress sober or what? What's going on here? Well, while all that's happening, there's a young man in front of us, barely able to stand. We end up walking this guy out and taking his phone and calling his friends to come find him. And I was like, wow, like this guy just put on this incredible show, like Goosebumps show. And this kid, not going to remember it at all. Like, who had more fun tonight? <laughs> you right. know, me with my uh, monster energy drink. <laughs> <laughs> you were lit. Yeah. <laughs> I, saw, I actually saw the picture of you, the, or the, the selfie video that you took while sitting oh, along. You, lo you look like the monster had just kicked in. They were giving away free monsters. How many did you drink? Uh, I think probably three each Joseph. Day. Yeah, I don't drink monsters. I don't drink monsters. <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> so speaking of monsters. Speaking, oh, that's a weird transition. Monster of recovery. Recovery is the new black, is the Instagram. And this is how we found today's guest. We had a little hiccup last time uh, she tried to make it. And so this has been a long time coming. We actually tried to get her on during when we were doing the Dope Sick review. So we, oh, we, yeah. we've been in contact with today's guest. Trying, years in the making. Trying to get, yeah, I guess it could be years. But I'd like to just bring her on because we've been trying to do this for a while now. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show, Michelle Smith. Hello. Hey, there she is. welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. Long time coming. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we got to chat a little bit before the show and, you know, got to find out a little bit of your background because I just knew you from your, your Instagram um, and social media presence. But turns out you do some some pretty impressive things. And before we get into all that, Michelle, maybe you could just Give the viewers just a little background about yourself and who you are and what you do. Yes. So I am Michelle Smith, and I'm the founder of Recovery is the New Black, which is a digital community for women who are living or exploring an alcohol-free life. That's in the nutshell of what I do in the evening as a recovery coach. I've spent the last 22 years doing addiction counseling in a maximum security prison. I've also been a probation officer for drug courts and veterans court and mental health courts. So I do a lot of service in the community. Um, and, you know, when I finally fell into my own personal addiction, it was just now I'm, I'm not just the book smart of addiction. I am somebody who is in the midst of it. And it gave me such a different perspective to heal myself in my recovery journey and to be there for my clients in a different way than I ever could have before. And so my passion is just, you know, really serving people who are really struggling with hardships in their life and are losing faith in themselves. So that's what I do. I've got two kiddos that live in the Pacific Northwest. And oh, um, where, where specifically? Yes. So I States. live on the border. Oregon and Washington. Oh my God. That's like the best part of the country. It is. I love it. Ah. Oh, weather. It is beautiful. We need it's, to take toxicology on the road and, yeah. and do a couple weeks out there. And we could do one from Haystack Rock. Okay. Right. You heard it here first. 
Haystack yes. Rocket? Yes. That's the one from the Goonies, right? I believe so. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. I was just at the Goonies house, too. What? The house is still there? Oh, my oh, God. Oh, yeah. I had no idea. Oh, yeah. It doesn't look the same over the years. They've had different owners, and so they cleaned it up. It's got Wi-Fi so it now. Look- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do yeah. they still have the pulley system yeah. thing that bring the in the beginning? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, no joke. At least once a week, I fantasize about like quitting my job and selling everything I own and just moving out to to Oregon. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like I'll just be a farmer or something. I don't know. So if I don't see you, just suddenly disappear. That's where I'm going to go look for you. Check check for me in Oregon. Okay. (laughs) It's a thing. People do that too. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Um. So are are you from the Pacific Northwest originally? Is that where you grew up? Yes. Yeah. Born and raised. Wow. It's fascinating. So as a Pacific Northwesterner, and don't worry, we'll get to serious questions, but what are you, what are your thoughts on your area's portrayal in the Twilight series? I have to say that I don't watch Twilight. <gasps> Joseph's crushed. I mean, I don't really I either. My wife loved it. Well, I believe between the three of us, you are definitely the... Uh, the biggest Twilight <laughs> the, fan? The expert. <laughs> <laughs> well, because it's in a Forks... The town of Forks is the, the main. Anyway. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I've ah, seen so you do know. <laughs> no. I, I do know that. Yes. <laughs> that is so funny. Um, now, so when, uh, so you talk, so you were working in kind of these helping areas, you know, through probation and mental health courts and all these different things and then discovered recovery. Is that what I picked up from your intro or is it the other way around? No, that's exactly what it what it was. I was working in the field um, for geez, at least over a decade before I even started to struggle with substances at all. Yeah, which is fascinating. Yeah. So I, I guess my first question is, what drew you to the field? Because typically we see, you know, you know, people who have trauma become trauma counselors. People with addiction start working in addiction services of some sort. You know, so what initially drew you if you didn't come from that traditional path? Right. That's a great question. You know, I was raised from, I was raised with a bunch of alcoholic doctors. (laughs) The family was just, they were physicians and it was, you're going to go to college. You're going to be a doctor. Like my life was structured and, and I was told what it was, what was going to happen. And I knew that I wasn't going to be a doctor, but I, I wanted to help people. That was the environment I was raised in. It's giving, caretaking, being of service, And so I started exploring into like teaching and counseling and through college, I had an internship with the crisis line and I just fell in love with the ability to help people and advocate for people at at their worst time of their life, which then just spiraled into getting recruited into the prisons to be able to build these recovery programs um, so that these inmates can get out and be productive members of society. So it kind of started that way and evolved into just, I was trained and conditioned that way as a clinician and I just absolutely love it. So that's, that's kind of the backstory. Okay. And so prior to, you know, entering that field, you know, aside from, from being raised in kind of an alcoholic environment, pretty normal, traditional, straightforward kind of life. Yeah. I mean, my, I remember somebody asking me this. I think it was the clinical director of my inpatient treatment program where I was a patient. And what's normal, right? Yeah. The setting on a washing machine? Like, <laughs> I don't even know. Because I was like, I had a normal childhood. I wasn't beat. 
you know, I didn't, wasn't sexually assaulted. Like I had my basic needs and more, it was normal to me. Um, but you know, having an alcoholic father and my evening is contingent on if he was drinking or not, are we going to play or am I going to hide? That's not normal, Mm -hmm. you know? Absolutely. And so it was, it, my basic needs were taken care of, but it wasn't, but normal, probably not. No, you yeah, know? absolutely. I mean, like, especially as, as a child, right? You know, the the person who you kind of depend on for everything. You know, not knowing if you're going to get nice daddy or mean daddy, or you know, super fun or super not fun, or um, yep. leads to kind of like an, an insecurity, right? Uh, you know, not having kind of like that solid rock or reliable person. Um, I could definitely see that. You know, kind of causing some issues. Yeah. So are we talking with your father functioning alcoholic, obviously, like making it to his his career is not in jeopardy, but but when he gets home, it's it's a different story. It was until it wasn't. Mm. He was um, patients reported him and he was mandated to go to inpatient treatment twice. He is now passed and he was sober for several years before he had a massive heart attack. Mm-hmm. But um it got him into a heap of trouble with the board and with the community and everything else that, you know, this disease doesn't discriminate, right? No one is immune. And I think there's a really high risk of people in the professional field as well with burnout and me included. There's a license. I have a license. It's on the line if I and doing something I'm not supposed to be doing. And so it kept me a little bit more secretive and in silence because people expected something from me and there was something to lose if I disclose that I'm struggling. So that keeps people quiet and it kept him quiet. It kept me quiet and it kept a bunch of people that I work with quiet and there's too many people dying for us to stay silent in our sobriety. And if we can be that voice for one person that you guys know that they're not alone, that's huge. Right. Absolutely. You know, one thing's real interesting with like, when you're talking about like professionals with licenses and things like that, you know, very often we see like, uh, attorneys, right. They have one of the highest incidences Mm -hmm. of alcoholism of any profession. Um, and it's talked about like in attorney publications, but attorneys don't necessarily come forward all the time and, and seek recovery. Because, like, fear of losing that license keeps them from asking for help. But all those long-term programs, specifically the ones for the pilots and the ones for doctors, you know, they have really long-term stringent programs, like a year minimum of supervision just for getting caught one time in trouble, right? Um, but some, they have some of the highest success rates because not only is it super long and thorough treatment, but they have something to lose. So like that same thing that kind of keeps them from seeking help really serves as a huge motivator once they are actively seeking right. recovery, which and, is super interesting. To and, me. and it is a big difference if they, if it's like self disclosed or if they get caught doing something. I'm sure there's some kind of, you know, I'm sure you get in more trouble if you get caught right. than if you self disclose, but um, not enough of a difference that they just say like, Hey, send me to rehab. Gotcha. Yeah. So where did the slippery slope start happening for you to where it was brought you to getting the practical knowledge of of this side of addiction? 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, I always knew that I had like the generational curse. Like I had this predisposition and I, I intentionally, I went into this with intention. Like, I don't want to be like X, Y, and Z. I want to be the perfect example of what not to be. And so I really stayed away from drugs and alcohol, even just experimenting in high school and college. You know, I'm just like, it's not going to serve me. It's going to deter me from what I want to do. I, I don't have the desire. So why try? And as time went on and I was working really hard in my professional career to really climb that ladder, burnout, stress, overwhelm. I found myself working by day in the mental health ward at night, working in the, in the substance abuse ward, 12 hours in, in a prison. It's a lot. It's draining. It's exhausting. And that's where I really started noticing that I started saying yes to happy hours team building activities, hanging out with my coworkers and the little small amount of time I did have to socialize where it just became one won't hurt. I've passed this threshold. I'm in my mid thirties at this point. There's, if it would have happened, it would have already happened. And so I opened up kind of Pandora's box to, I'll just be really cautious and careful. And I was for many years again, until I wasn't Major life changes really triggered that. I lost my mom right when I had my child. So losing your own mom when you become a mom was just devastating. Again, unexpected. And my husband was deployed to war. I had my first stroke and I hadn't been diagnosed with postpartum depression yet. And so there was this melting pot of hardships that were happening all at the same time. And I had already opened up Pandora's box, right? So I was already starting these habits and these rituals and these routines. And it was slow and steady, but my dependence was and my tolerance were increasing. And as time went on and I wasn't addressing this, it just got to the point where it gets in everyone's addiction of boundaries, rules, moderation, measuring all the things that didn't matter anymore. I would drink top shelf alcohol until I was running into the gas stations, you know, for airplane minis and boxed wine and whatever garbage I could get my hands on. And that it was just, it was dangerous. And all the consequences that you guys know that come along with you know, being an active addiction, it just kept going and going and going. Child protective services, hospitalizations, inpatient treatment. You think you'd figure it out, Michelle, right? Yeah. Well, you said there was an injury at some point that got you on the, the opiates. Well, hold on. I'm, oh, I'm sorry. So Go ahead. when you talk about it not really kind of starting until you're in your mid-30s, were you mm-hmm. completely abstinent because you knew your genetics until then? Or like you drank socially and then during that time is when it became more of a regular occurrence? I had done it very rare occasions. So I wasn't completely like abstinent. I had never touched the stuff. Yeah. It was maybe a couple times a year okay. at like New Year's or something like that. And then it started uh, to get normalized on like every day. Like it's Wednesday. <laughs> kind of, right. kind of, okay. Got it. Got it. Yeah. We don't need to wait till Friday or five o'clock or, <laughs> you know, it just kept going earlier and yeah. earlier until I was just drinking every single morning, 24 hours. And so some some connection here. Um, I used to work with an adolescent drug and alcohol treatment program where a lot of our kids were mandated by the juvenile justice system. I used to have to go down to um, the juvenile justice center every Wednesday and attend the drug court and, you know, kind of talk when the judge wanted me to talk and give little updates on my on my guys. And 
every Wednesday I was invited to happy hour. And every Wednesday I was like, I don't drink you guys. Um, but all the, all the POs would all go out to happy hour afterwards. And I was, so I, I know that when you say this, like it's a real thing I've experienced. It. <laughs> yeah. It really is. It really is. And it's sad that that's where we're at is that that's the way that we congregate and communicate and, you know, download and just, just debrief. Like we're all just, we want to relax. We want to take the rough edges off a really stressful day. And it's like, it just, you know, it, it takes us down faster than quicksand eventually. And there's other ways that we can find connection, right? Other than alcohol or mind altering chemicals, but this is the society that we live in. And I don't think it's going to go anywhere. The more we speak out about these things, the more awareness people have to, you know, to really be mindful. But I have to navigate life through a really boozy culture. Everyone's not going to get sober just to keep me in line. So we have to navigate and course correct, you know, um, and just really stick with our programs and know that there's going to be good times and there's going to be bad times. And Whatever happens today, I can't drink. I can't do it. And I'm okay with that because it leaves endless possibilities of things I can do. And today I want to live before I didn't want to. So you you had a question about an injury? Yeah, because you were saying that there was a back injury at some point that got you on the, the painkillers. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, that kind of makes things a little bit worse. It does. Yeah. That obviously ramped up my, my addiction disease as well. I had my first back surgery and they hand those things out like candy. And so when I had already picked up my alcohol use in combination with the pills, it was just a complete disaster. Um, and I created a dependency to that for several years, um, until I just finally cold turkeyed during one of my overdose hospitalizations, I had four of them in total. Um, but I eventually stopped the pills and continued with the drinking. So, you know, when, when you talk about kind of like your progression, you know, that's, it's like you said, it's, it's kind of the standard. We all do it right. You know, it gets more frequent and then more intense. And then, you know, we go from only drinking top shelf to drinking whatever. Right. Um, and then starting to set these limits of, well, I'm only going to drink this way or that way or these days, et cetera. At, you know, at what point, you know, what was it that for you, if you can point to like a moment when you first really realized like, oh shit, like this, this is a problem. This needs to change. This needs to stop. This is not okay. Jeez, you know, there was a lot of those, a lot of those. I Losing one of my first jobs, I think, really put the brakes on what are you doing? You built this career and now you're destroying it with your alcohol consumption, you know? But my 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 point, like where my mindset was at that point was how can I regulate? How can I figure out how to manage this and keep this a part of my life versus accepting and embracing that I have to release this thing. I have to start the grieving and healing process of knowing alcohol isn't serving me, right? So when I'd have these consequences, it was more like, oh, I have to be careful. I have to reel it back in because I don't want things, you know, bad to happen. 
because I don't want to lose this thing. And so there were lots of different moments that happened. I think one of my hospitalizations, I remembered being in the ED and it was like mortality motivation. Like I almost died again. My parents are dead. I know what it's like to be an adult orphan and I'm doing this to my kids. Mm. And that was the moment that I... You'd think that I'd never drank again, and I'd be lying if I if I said that, because I did. And that's how powerful this disease is. But it was, it was really the turning point for me of this crap is real. And you're not going to be around very much longer if you don't figure it out. You know, it's funny to say, that you say that because, you know, we we hear it all the time working in treatment. You know, clients will come in ready to do treatment, and they get kind of halfway through their detox, and they're like, you know what? Like... I'm not going to do treatment after detox. I know what I got to do. I overdosed last week. It scared me to death. I'm not going to use, like, I, I literally think I have a client today who said that, you know, like, you know, the the fear of dying is going to keep me sober. But it sounds like your experience and my experience is that, you know, fear of dying is absolutely not enough to get somebody. No, I, I died. <laughs> yeah. wasn't, I, I got, you know, I got, uh, I, I know I've told you the story before. I got... I was I was on the it was kind of my last run, almost my last run. I made it out to New Jersey um, from Florida just because I had come into a little bit of money, and I know that there was good dope out there. So you know, I'm no dummy. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go out there and get good dope. I run through the money, and I'm in some like fucking just the dirtiest motel you could think of. You know, pay by the hour, and I overdose. And then get Narcaned, and then mm. if if you've ever have you ever been Narcaned before? No. Oh god! So it just it it's like I'm, I almost you, died the old fashioned way. Sorry. <laughs> so you're coming out of like this dream state because I mean you're just you're just coming to you know life is coming back into you, and I am surrounded by people at this trashy motel. And as soon as everybody sees me wake up, I see a crowd of people around me, everybody just walks away. And I have never felt more lonely in my entire life. Mm -hmm. And I had just, you know what I mean? I had just yeah. pretty much flatlined. And I get out of that and I'm just like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And then within like 15, 20 minutes, I'm like, you know, yeah, where's my dope? You know, they ran my pockets and stuff, but you know, I uh, went for more dope too. So what are you going to do? Eh, What's yeah. enough? Not nothing, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so you, you mentioned your kids a couple of times, you know, so, and, and it, it sounds like you were already a mother kind of as you really sunk into kind of the depths of your addiction. So, um, yeah. tell us a little bit about kind of like, you know, what, what did your ki kids experience, you know, during that time with you, you know, and, and what did you experience kind of in seeing kind of the harm it was causing to them? Yeah. You know, I had this expectation of what I thought motherhood was going to be. I waited until my, geez, what was I? I was in my mid thirties, early thirties when I started having kids and I had to work a lot. And part of that was people pleasing, perfectionism, all the things, but trying to keep up two incomes while my husband was at war. Like it, there was a lot of pressure and there was a lot of expectation on my plate, but, you know, I really wanted to follow in the footsteps of my mom and my grandmother and how they raised their kids. And I wasn't taken into consideration that the expectations of motherhood look a lot different now than they did 30, 40, 50 years ago, where 
great. If you want to work and not be a stay at home mom, that's fantastic. But now you have to do that and take care of your kids. Like there's nothing taken off of your plate. You're just, I always say, I felt like a last girl, like there's not enough of me to go around. And if I can't, I have my hands in everything and I can't do anything right besides put out fires. And so I was constantly disappointed because what I thought and where I was trying to achieve, I was always falling short. And so I was failing, you know, instead of saying, wow, like life's really hard. What can I get rid of? What can I delegate and prioritize? My stubborn butt was I have to do it all and do it with a smile on my face. And alcohol seems to be helping. It suppresses and takes just a lot of the overwhelm and the noise out of my head, even if it was temporary. Mm -hmm. And so my son, he was three when I went to inpatient treatment. My daughter was seven and she remembers a lot of this. And, you know, some examples are my older sister. She, you know, I remember her putting in her phone number and my daughter's backpack as like an emergency number in case she needs her for whatever reason. Um, she would go around and find the bottles that were hidden throughout the house and give them to dad. And they really created a bond of some type with that connection of mom's sick, we have to find all of these so that we can help make her better. And that that really took that wedge of you're policing me. You know, you're not trying to make me better. You're just embarrassing me and shaming me. All the things that I wanted to say that weren't really true, um, but I just wasn't there. Yeah. And so my daughter saw a lot, um, but, you know... I have made it, me and her have this bond now that I have now been in recovery longer than I was in active, active addiction. And she's my number one supporter, you know, and to normalize sobriety for my kids when there's not a lot of moms that can do that right now. It's really powerful. And, she, you know, she's super proud of me <laughs> where I have to sometimes if there's a mom drinking, I have to remind her, but it's legal. It's okay. We're not going to shame people <laughs> because fine. they choose this. Yeah. So, so yeah, were you client facing with your job when you were, when you were, when you were, you know, when you're in drinking a lot, did anybody ever call you out on that? Like, cause I know there's a lot of like, you spot it, you got it, you know, cause yeah. I know I've, if I was sent to a counselor and I smelled a little alcohol or something like that, that I, I would have definitely probably picked up on it. Right. And I think remembering the population of people I worked with, they're, when you're well-respected and you're protected mm -hmm. um, at whatever costs. And so um, nobody ever reported me. I did go to a DUI training and the DUI judge found me intoxicated and I did lose my job. So there was that huge, horrific disaster. Um, but none of the clients at least that I know ever reported anything that got back to me. Can you, can you tell us that story there? The, the DUI? Oh, it was horrific. It, I don't even remember all of it <laughs> clearly, but yeah, I was just there as a probation officer for drug court doing the whole DUI thing and all the judges and the lawyers and everybody through treatment courts wanted to go out and have a couple drinks. And, you know, that's a couple bottles to me. Um, and, you know, you end up, Shoeless, phoneless, eating Taco Bell under a tree in a park oh, Jesus at Christ. three in the morning. <laughs> like, doesn't everybody do that? Um, 
And so, you know, that's not a good way to represent your county and your treatment court. So that was huge for me and kind of the cornerstone to me accepting the need for help and actually going to treatment. So again, it's just another huge like barrier and, you know, disaster that had to happen in order to get to where I am now. So that was kind of the impetus for your first inpatient. Did you say that you went to treatment multiple times? No, I was hospitalized multiple times for overdose, but I only went to treatment once. Okay. So we were, we were talking at work earlier, you know, a couple of us were just kind of, you know, talking about recovery stuff and, Mm -hmm. um, someone brought up like, Oh, one of our staff members got sober at this place. that's known as kind of like a hardcore place that you go to once you've been to treatment a couple times, they're like, ah, you should try this place. It's a little more intense. And so this guy mentioned, you know, I got sober at this facility and she was like, Oh, how many times did you go to treatment? And he's like, Oh, I was a one shot wonder. And so he got sober the first time he went to treatment ever. So very cool. Yeah. Um, so going into treatment, you know, had you shifted in mindset to like, okay, like I am going here to learn how to live a life where I'm completely abstinent and in recovery, or was it, you know, I'm going in here to kind of figure out like how to just drink on the weekends or maybe, you know what I mean? Cause I know I went to treatment you know, half a dozen times. And it was only the last time that I really wanted to not do any drugs anymore. Right, right. Well, I think that like, there's so much that like aligns with someone's decision to to be done, right? We have this epiphany, this aha moment, this moment of surrender. And it's like, from me walking into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous till the day I had my last drink, all the messages in between with hospital doctors and inpatient Nothing was different. It might have been delivered a little bit different. I was just ready to hear the message, mm-hmm. right? I was full, wholeheartedly ready. No matter what happens, it's off the table. There's no discussion. There's no negotiation. Um, but when I went to inpatient treatment, of course, the first thing that happens, well, my husband dumped me off because he's like, you're, I'm leaving you or you're going here. And that happened to be the trend because there was three other wives that got dumped off by their husbands as well. This is a thing. <laughs> I like um, that. Just at the smoking area. Oh, your husband's going to leave me too. Right. <laughs> it was. It was just like that too. It was actually hilarious and we can laugh about it now. Um, but yeah, like, so of course me working in residential treatment, I walk in there. The first thing that the, the milieu counselor says is, oh, are you the new intern? And I was just like, um, oh my gosh, like this is just way, this is exactly what I expected to happen. Right. And so I swallowed my pride and I said, no, I'm a patient and I'm here for admission. And I had been sober for five days before I went to inpatient. And the reasoning for that is, is that I had child protective services open up their second investigation because of the hospital reports and me being alone with my kids intoxicated to the level I was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, that fear was instilled, obviously another barrier, you know, another like stop drinking, Michelle, like you're destroying your life. Um, so that slowed me down, but, you know, to answer your question of where was I in my mindset, I would say I was somewhere in between. I, I knew that I had to get rid of it, but I didn't know how, like I wanted it to be forever. You know, it's kind of those things that I wish I could go back and do it again. Because I would do it all. I would like wholeheartedly, hardcore. I left at 21 days. I was done. I was mad. I walked out. Relapsed 30 days later. 
I went out for a year and a half and it was again, a total disaster. Um, but it was part of my story and it Mm -hmm. stopped me, got me dry, got me to learn things. Um, I'm privileged and grateful and all of the things to be able to be given that opportunity because not everybody is. Um, but I never went back to treatment after that. It just took me a year and a half to get my stuff together. Um, and really kind of find the programs and the community and the support that I needed to make this a lifestyle and be okay with it and love my lifestyle and learn to embrace a sober life and that I'm not really missing anything or losing anything. I am if I continue to drink and pop pills. So so when you talk about like your sober lifestyle, you know, what what does that mean to you? You know, what does it entail? You know, traditional 12 step stuff, a little mix mishmash of different things. You know, what, what, what does that mean for you? Yeah, that's a great question. Cause people use those terms. So interchangeably, you know, I'm a person that is in the fellowship and works a program of recovery and, you know, AA saved my life. And I went in there drunk a million times that I wasn't ready. Um, but that was the only thing that was always constantly there for me. And so I do work that program of recovery, um, you know, therapy, I'd use medication, you know, prevention um, for anti-craving, a lot of different treatment modalities. I actually started to focus on the bereavement, the reasonings for why I was reaching for this external solution to this internal problem, right? They always like talk about like, it's not about like, it's the pain, right? Not the drinking. Why am I doing this? What led to it? Because if I don't figure that stuff out, I'm going to go back to drinking. So I did a lot of healing work Mm -hmm. with therapy and with bereavement um, and how to move forward and push off from there. And, you know, in different seasons of my life or depends on like if there's anniversaries of deaths and stuff, I'm more in tune with knowing that I need to beef up my program or hit more meetings or, you know, double up on my therapy or whatever it looks like. Um, But I have to be vigilant and constantly aware of what I'm doing and who I'm surrounding myself with. And I'm okay with that. Absolutely. Um, So at what point does uh, sober is the new black become a thing, you know? Recovery is the new black. Sorry, recovery is the new black. My bad. <laughs> recovery is new. <laughs> you were fine. I had to tease you. <laughs> um, so I started that when I was a little over a year sober. And I think the main reason that I did this, and remember, I worked in a prison where you can't have photographs, social media, you can't be extorted for your family. Like it's very much behind the scenes and secretive, which is exactly how I live my life with my parents. And so all of a sudden getting social media and actually telling somebody that I'm an alcoholic and putting all this out to the world wide web was freaking terrifying. And I did it because I knew that I needed another level of accountability. And so I started that and um, use it as my personal journal and realize that there was so many other women out there that I didn't realize. I really thought I was the only one. Like, I'm not that special. Like, Michelle, you're not the only one. But documenting and having all of these people say me too was more powerful than anything else. And so those conversations kept getting bigger and bigger where I moved it from, you know, into private groups and started having these, you know, interpersonal relationships and these, you know, teaching moments with these women. Um, And it's like a movement. It's like a thing. So 
that was the motivation to start doing it originally. So it was it was just meant to be like kind of like your journal kind of place to document your journey and then just organically snowballed into this this thing that it is today. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what happened. So yep. and and is um you know, one thing that we talk about a lot on the show is, you know, how broad recovery can be, right? You know, AA, NA, refuge, you know, celebrate recovery, yoga, you know, transcendental meditation, medication, therapy. Like there's so many different things mm -hmm. and also nuances, right? You know, um, abstinence, focused recovery, harm reduction, recovery, everything in between. So, so kind of, you know, where does, where do you and your community um, stand on, on all that, especially when you have something that it sounds like it's pretty nationwide, maybe even international, you know, how do you bring all that stuff together? You know, it's so personalized. I'm, you know, there's a huge alcohol-free movement that's happening with the sober curious, the sober serious, whatever we want to call ourselves where, you know, I think when people use the term sobriety, it's like they struggled with addiction they struggled with, you know, alcohol and so there's a lot of conversation around what do we call ourselves, right? And why do we have to have labels? I'm a person who believes in harm reduction and really just meeting people where they're at because that's just what I think people should do, yeah. you know? And that's what I did. And, you know, I, I couldn't get scared into it. And so that's a huge thing for me is just, you know, like you said, it's a smorgasbord of opportunity to really take whatever treatment modality is working for you and run with it. And it can be adjusted according, like I said earlier, like in my different seasons of my life. But, you know, I, I'm a big believer in like, let's, I, I like the hardcore stuff, right? I'm going to tell you you're an addict. I'm going to tell you you're an alcoholic. Like, that's just how it is. And I work best with people who are ready to identify and to do the work um, because I see the biggest transformation when they're invested in their own recovery and they're open to feedback and ideas. They do really, really well. And so for me to be able to co-sign on moderate drinking, the Sinclair method of let's get to mindful drinking, like I feel like it's a waste of time and it's garbage. But people learn because I know at the end of it, no one can do it. I tried to crack the code for years for everybody. You, you just can't do it. You can measure and drink water and do it right the first time. It's just delaying the inevitable. So I, I just don't, I don't align with that, that method. But um, yeah, And you would think that people that are looking into ways to you know, drink successfully and, 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 yes. and, and happen upon, you know, recovery is the new black. If somebody's searching for that, probably a good sign that they need it, you know, yeah. <laughs> just like, and you, yeah. but you, you have to ease into it sometimes and be like, you know, why don't you give, give it a try, you know, try, try this method, try that method. But if you're thinking about that, you have to drink, but you don't know how. So we, we have a, uh, a coworker and uh, a guest on the show, Brittany O'Malley, a couple months ago, this is one of the best things that I've heard when she kept on getting arrested for a DUI and her dad asked her, picking her up from, from one of the DUIs, from jail, yeah. from jail like, what do you want? And she said, all I want to do is have one red Solo cup of beer or alcohol or whatever her drink of choice was. 
that was her goal to have just one solo cup of a drink like a normal person well have i ever told you the uh instead of the sinclair method i actually had the the joseph method and this was (laughs) something i developed in 2003 in an attempt to not do heroin and what i would do is uh drink beer and xanax until i passed out oh yeah but yeah, with, with Xanax, though, I know that you might have just gone and gotten it and then didn't remember it and probably robbed their Walmart on the way. Yeah. But didn't do heroin. But didn't do heroin. Success. Successful. Yeah, successfully. Uh, yeah. Um, patent pending. Trade, yeah. Trademark. Joseph. The Joseph method. Now it's the toxicology method since we're in. Okay. Fine. We own you. You know what's cool though, like about like that spectrum of like alcohol use disorder is that like there's these normies. You're a normal person that can drink responsibly, or you're an alcoholic. And we have an idea of what society says alcoholism looks like and resembles, right? But it's like this whole sober curious movement and alcohol free movement. Like we can come in and address our drinking and look to see if it's problematic at any time. We don't have to wait until our life becomes a dumpster fire yep. in order to then take action and be a full blown on alcoholic. Right. Yeah. But all the, you know, peer pressure and the bullying and the memes and the jokes, and you can't get anything, but tap, you know, it's like water and juice. Like I'm not a plant and I'm not a kid. Like we need sophisticated drinks that taste delicious and make us feel important and special too, you know? And so that's a huge thing is like, if it doesn't feel good, don't label yourself if you don't want to, if that's what's holding you back. But I really truly believe that a person who doesn't have a problem with alcohol doesn't question and wonder if they have a problem with alcohol. Yeah. Right. They yeah. just don't. You know, so you have your answer right there. Yeah. One of one of my my best friends, Anel, she was the first sober person I knew before I got sober. Like I, and she was like, she's like, you know, I just don't think people who aren't drug addicts sit around wondering if they're a drug addict. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm a drug addict. <laughs> uh, but I like what you, well, you you did mention briefly uh, the uh, you know having like a, a non-alcoholic option. And uh, you know, I was talking uh, about we went to Kentucky, right? So we went out to eat a bunch, and mm-hmm. every single place we went to had a little mocktail section. Um, it's mostly, you know, soda water with some kind of sugary juice, but eh, it makes you feel fancy, yeah. right? It makes you feel nice. Um, so yeah, it's nice to have the option. Yeah, yeah, it's very cool. And, and some of these it's places, come a long way. and some of it them has. get like real bougie with it too. Like you can get like a, a mocktail that costs what a drink drink costs. I know, like nine, I know. ten, twelve dollars. <laughs> yeah, it's real. It's, yep. Yeah, Sprite with yeah. pineapple juice just cost yeah. me nine dollars. Fantastic. There's actually a place in Austin that has a. a they had some mocktails. They had three on the menu, and one of them had a little asterisk next to it, and it looks the most delicious. And so I went and looked at the, and I, I read the fine print at the bottom. It was like, this drink contains CBD. Recommendation limit is two of these drinks per day. And I was like, oh, yeah. probably don't need to do that one. <laughs> The Trojan horse, is yeah. that the name of it? Yeah, the Trojan horse. <laughs> the oops, you relapsed. Yeah. <laughs> I gotcha. Um, <laughs> All right, so I think I think we're getting towards kind of the end of our time today. Um, so we like to to do a little something here that we call rapid, rapid fire, fire question time. time. It's rapid fire question time. Netflix comes to you or A24, whatever comes up to you, and they are going to do the recovery is the new black movie 
Who is playing Michelle? This actually just happened, and I'm going to be playing myself. What? Are you serious? Wait, for real? That, that, it's, it's in the works, yes. Holy that shit. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> oh, my God. How exciting. Netflix? Yep. With Netflix. Awesome. Okay. So, <laughs> wow. All right. Well, you're going to have to come. Promise you're going to have to come back on the show when it releases, and then you could you could make us part of your, um, your, your press junket. Yeah, we'll be like, we knew her when. Yeah. Yeah. Well, congr- Whatever. You guys can be the inmates in the back when we go into the penitentiary. Let me know. Bet. We got tattoos. Yeah. <laughs> That's how- typecasting. That's how Danny Trejo started his career. I know. Right? I know. Um, all right, my turn. Uh, so Ben and Jerry's comes to you and say, "Hey, Michelle, you know, after all the success of your new Netflix movie, we'd like to do a custom uh, ice cream flavor for you—a signature ice cream flavor. Mm-hmm. What would you like us to put in the ice cream, and what do you call the ice cream?" Oh. I love coconut and there's not enough coconut. So Sunset Smith. There you go. That would Sunset be the name Smith. of it. Okay. And then just a ton <laughs> of coconut product in it or what? Yeah, I'm I'm boring. I like vanilla, coconut, just simple, just simple, natural smells. Yeah, they remind me of things that are good and holy and, and special. So I just, I like that. All right. Do you, do you have a recovery song? Or no, sorry, rapid fire question. What is your recovery song? Your anthem. It is the yes, it is the one from Treatment. It was it's Rachel that I forgot her last name. It's not Patterson. It's this fight the fight song. This is my fight yes. song. Take back my life. That is an anthem. Yeah. Okay. True anthem. Yeah. <laughs> and well, that gets really blasted in my like headphones when I'm really riled up. I have a recovery jams like Spotify list. And I just either at the gym, hit the pavement and, you know, set that dang timer for 20 minutes and whatever I thought I needed to do or how frustrated I was, it's gone. Yeah, mine's not a song, but it's that little girl who gives herself a- affirmations in the mirror who's like, I love my house. I love my friends. I love my Allison. I love my brush. Oh, <laughs> uh, should I steal your question? Yeah, go ahead. I love it. All right, I'm going to steal your question. All right, time travel vacation. You can travel to any place and era in history. Where do you go and why? To any era. Oh, geez. That's a good one. Um. I don't know, maybe when my parents were younger, just to kind of experience what life was like during that time. Cause it, you know, so different, but um, 50, 50s and 60s is that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. When there wasn't the cell phones and there wasn't, you know, it was just the simplicity of just, you know, you, you had, you had what you needed and you were okay with that. And it was a lot of family and connection. And I think we're losing a lot of that. So that would be cool. Anytime with no cell phones. Yeah. I, I grew right. up with no cell phones, yeah. and I, I loved it. I did, too. Yeah. Not as much as I did. How old were you when you got your first cell phone? 19. Okay. Maybe 20. All right. <laughs> final question. Okay. Have, have you ever missed a podcast appearance? Ha, ha, ha. You're funny. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say I have for the first time ever. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I know. That hit, that hit <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, 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 uh, for those of you who don't know, she, Michelle missed a podcast appearance a couple months back, one of the episodes when it was just Joseph and I, but we just posted that episode. Yeah. Last week yeah. Th- things happen though. And, and, and we definitely forgive you. And we're glad that, that you got to finally make it. Michelle, if it makes you feel better, I have missed podcast appearances. He's missed on, like, on this he's missed podcast. like five or six. And it's not like he calls me and, 
hey, I'm not going to make it next Friday. Like, I'll call him and be like, hey, could you grab me a coffee on the way? On, on the way to what? Like, I'm in Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah. huh? What are you talking about? Anyway. Um, all right, Michelle, the last thing we like to do is, is kind of just give you the floor, you know, to, as we wrap things up. You know, uh, if anything you'd like to promote, website, uh, words of wisdom, kind of just the floor is yours and open to, to share with our audience. Yeah, you can find me at any of my social media platforms at Recovery is the New Black. And so I have the website, all social media, and I am getting ready to launch my first course. It should be ready in time for dry July. And I'm going to be doing a, an a audio challenge, which I think is really cool that really hits the niche of moms, carpool line, folding laundry. They need to listen, right? That's a lot of the time that they have. And so the challenge is going to, to kick off in July and then followed up by a course. I think that's super exciting, needed. I'm really, I'm just over the moon about it. And, um, you know, words of wisdom, I just... I think going back to where we were, as we get to look at the spectrum and just regardless of where you're at in your relationship with alcohol or drugs is that you don't have to wait for a reason to stop. Just stopping is a reason enough and ditch the labels. And if it's not adding value to your life, it's okay to take a look at that and start to do the work. You know, I know it's scary, it's but we can go scared. I had to go scared eventually. And that regret, the only thing I ever regretted was not starting sooner and having my addiction take so many years of my life that I can never get back, but I don't live there anymore. I live in the future, live in the present, but we have so much more that we can do now. So just keep, keep fighting for whatever it is and bless and release the fact that you might not be a really good alcoholic and you might be considered a quitter. And I think that's freaking awesome. So if you can't be good at being a good drunk, that's kind of a cool thing, you yeah. know? Come <laughs> over you to the other side. Drinking, if you suck at drinking, drinking, you might be an alcoholic. Yeah. <laughs> right? Oh, I love right? that. I like that. I don't think I've ever heard I of guess it that, that way. like, I'm not good at like drinking poison. Like I'm not good at it. I quit. Like, okay, I tap out. That's I'm good with that. We're good. Yeah, I couldn't shoot heroin like a gentleman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Michelle, thank you so much for for taking time out of your day to to be here and and share with us a little piece of your story and the work that you do um today. Uh, as, as always, thank you to you, our loyal listener. Um, don't forget to like, follow, share, subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends, throw up some smoke signals, um, tag the toxicology logo on the table at your favorite 12-step meeting. Um, and as we like to say here at Toxicology, there's, there's a, a thousand, thousand ways, ways in and a thousand, thousand ways out. And we, we hope you find yours. Ooh. <laughs> <Love that. laughs>